Welcome back to Season 2 of the Distilling Craft Podcast. You're listening to Episode 8, Tide Houses. The Distilling Craft Podcast is brought to you in part by our great sponsors, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, providing the craft spirits industry worldwide with the best fermentation yeasts for more than 100 years. Contact our sales team to help make your choice on yeasts and products for distilling your next great spirit. For more information or to find a distributor, visit Fermentis.com. That is F-E-R-M-E-N-T-I-S.com. Hey guys, how's it going? This is Colleen Moore from Dalkita. I'm your host for episode number eight of Distilling Craft's second season. First, let's do a little catch up. Has anything changed in your life since we last talked a few months ago? Nothing? Maybe it's just the same old, same old? Of course not. Lots has changed since we dropped our previous episode about spirits judging at the beginning of March 2020. All of the industry conventions have been canceled, rescheduled, and then eventually transitioned to a virtual event. We've had 50 shades of lockdown all across the country trying to flatten the curve of the coronavirus cases, and we've lost a lot of souls in that time. Maybe people you know. I know several people across the country that were positive for the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, and I actually may have been one of them. We're still awaiting antibody testing covered by our insurance company to find out if the illness I had in late February, early March provided antibodies consistent to a coronavirus infection, so the jury's still out on that. Then we had confusion about reopening and then haphazard or even non-existent guidance on reopening at the federal level. Combine that with 50 plus flavors on reopening plans. You probably started down that road too. Then we've had George Floyd's murder by police and the pent up anger, rage and frustration that kicked off demonstrations and protests around the world and riots in many places in the US. Safe to say there has been some stuff going on. It's been a dumpster fire figuratively and literally in many cases. Thank you for downloading and listening to this episode today. On the show today, we're going to cover the sexy topic of Tide House Laws. We've got a case study with seven stills from California that beverage attorney Daniel Croxell and I are going to dissect and discuss, along with the history of the laws and the three-tier system. It's pretty interesting stuff, and I think you're going to like it. So let's take a listen. So today we have the pleasure of having Daniel Croxell, a professor from the University of the Pacific and the McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, California. Welcome on to the show, Dan. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, your scholarly interests center around legal writing and laws that impact craft beer, um, including constitutional issues like the First Amendment and tied house laws, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, We will be doing a little bit of armchair quarterbacking because the one example that we've pulled up that just happened at the beginning of February 2020 is Seven Stills Brewery and Distillery. They are actually having to cease their operations for 90 days following the receipt of about 60 
tied house violations over the past two years, and they had a subsequent license suspension. So there is a lot that is going to go into this, but Daniel here is going to help us walk our way through it and understand a little bit more about the three-tiered system and tied house laws. So to start off, why don't you give us an idea about what the three-tiered system is in purity of concept? Okay, uh, in purity of concept, the three-tier system came about, uh, basically started being thought about before prohibition was repealed. And in fact, Rockefeller um, commissioned a study by two gentlemen named Raymond Fosdick and Albert Scott. And they wrote kind of a treatise called Toward Liquor Control, and they examined what might be the best avenue to regulate alcohol in the United States should it become legal again. And it kind of came down to what they call now the three-tier system. And in that system, what, what that means is there are, there are obviously three tiers, one being the manufacturer, the second tier being the wholesaler or the distributor, and the third tier being the retailer. And so in purity of concept, no none of the um, members of one tier can have any kind of uh, relationship or or um, kind of influence over the other tier. I mean, relationships going too far because of course they'll have contracts, et cetera. But um, the idea was to keep them as separate as possible to avoid market manipulation and ostensibly to promote temperance, which was a concern at the time. So the, the point is that basically if you manufacture alcohol, you can't um, have any kind of influence over a, a distributor or wholesaler or uh, a retailer for the purposes of you know, better placement in the market, et cetera. So they wanted to keep those three tiers completely separate. And so the particular state this happened in California is a three-tier state, correct? Yes and no. Um, we do have uh, ostensibly a three-tier system, but we're really what California has done is modified it a little bit in the sense that if you're a manufacturer, you can also distribute your own alcohol. And in a strict three-tier system, that would not be permissible. You'd have to go through the wholesaler or the distributor. There's uh, synonyms. So California has modified it a bit uh, in the sense that, again, if you make if you make your own beer or, or spirits, I believe spirits um, and wine uh, too, you can distribute your own uh, to retail accounts, which would be illegal under a pure three-tier system. So the um, Seven Stills Brew Stillery that opened up in San Francisco in around 2016 was founded by Tim Obert and Clint Potter. And it should be said that they were not available for comment on this story. Um, and so we are using an article that I will link on the show notes page from the San Francisco Gate uh, newspaper. And so that is where we're getting the direct quotes um, from this article. Uh, but their unique business model involved brewing craft beer or buying it from uh, another craft brewery and then distilling that into a small batch whiskey product. Uh, however, legally dubious marketing practices, which the distillery contends are accidental, have resulted in what's called tied house violations. So could you give us an idea of what a tied house violation is? Sure. So we talked about the three-tier system, which is kind of the uh, overarching concept in alcohol regulation. And then to um, put that concept into practice, the states, the several states have um, enacted what we call tied house laws. And tied house laws essentially exist to um, regulate 
and control the interactions between the three tiers. And the main concept is that one, a member of one tier cannot give anything of value. That's, the, that's actually the legal term in both the Federal Alcohol Administration Act and, and most states' versions. Um, they cannot give anything of value to a retailer. And, and the, the main point there is that is to keep um, influence uh, away from the relationship between the manufacturer and the retailer. So tight house laws are designed to um, prohibit this influence that they were worried about at the time, the legislature, at the time that the laws were passed, because at the time there was um, the ability to impact a retailer's decisions um, or even a wholesaler's decisions based on market strength of the manufacturer. And that's kind of flip-flop today, but the laws are still in effect. And the whole point is to prohibit um, a retailer from being beholden to any particular alcohol manufacturer. Okay. And so historically, the, where did the Tide House idea come from? I, I've done some research and I've found an example of it. And I think that it still even exists in the UK today as a business model um, where a brewery would either own a public house or a bar um, wholesale and hire somebody to run it or they would lease it out to somebody to run it. But the idea being the brewery would then only offer um, or the pub would only offer that particular brewery's beer. Uh, and so I'm guessing that that just kind of got on a boat and crossed the Atlantic with all of the people uh, that came over to the United States to colonize it and make their own breweries, et cetera, et cetera. So um, can you give us maybe some examples of a Tide House violation? Sure. So I guess I'll start briefly with, I agree that with your interpretation of what a Tide House is, just think of it as a retailer who is basically connected to a manufacturer. So the example in the United States is, would have been saloons back in the day. Um, you know, a manufacturer might, you know, pay for a, a bar's new bar and refrigeration system, if they had it at the time, or, or give just straight up money to only sell that particular brand. And so when uh, prohibition was repealed, there were kind of, there are two concerns that the tight house laws uh, are kind of focused on. One being temperance, which has recently been kind of called into question, at least in the Ninth Circuit. And the other was to prevent market domination in the sense that um, they wanted to avoid vertical integration. So they wanted to avoid a manufacturer from also controlling distribution and also controlling retail. Um, they thought that was bad for consumer choice. They thought that was bad for temperance because a retail house that was tied to a manufacturer would be obligated to push as much booze as they can from that brand. Um, and so the legislature decided they didn't want to do that. So at least in California, what they've done is they've created the ABC, the legislature through the Business and Professions Code and the ABC have created regulations that uh, prohibit uh, the offering or the, or the giving of anything of value between the manufacturer and the retailer. Now, the, an interesting example and something I'm kind of willing to bet is at issue in the Seven Stills case is something as simple as social media. So in the last uh, few years, and this has been changed, I'll get to that in a second, but it used to be illegal under the California, um, we call it Rule 106, it's an ABC regulation. It used to be illegal to post uh, the name of a retailer on 
uh, manufacturers, you know, social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, it was prohibited to mention that particular retailer because it was seen as free advertising and thus a thing of value. And in California, that's been changed a little bit. Now you can mention uh, the name of a manufacturer if you mention more than one and you don't state the price. Uh, so if you single out a, uh, a retailer and you're a manufacturer um, and you post that on social media somewhere on the internet, that is a violation of the tight house laws because it's seen as a thing of value. Um, and kind of the concept is to prevent laudatory comments, uh, to prevent a manufacturer from saying, hey, go to Dan's bar. That place sells our beer and they're awesome. That would That's seen as advertising by the regulatory bodies. So maybe a non-alcoholic uh, beverage example would be the, I guess, the war between Coke and Pepsi, right? Right. And they, they're not constrained um, by the regulations and laws pertaining to alcohol. Alcohol is unique in that sense. Um, in my studies and in my, my job, I've been trying to find a um, analogous industry and it's really not out there. I mean, there's some similarities between like car franchises and things like that, but alcohol is truly unique in the, in the regulatory structure, uh, at least as far as I've found. And I've looked pretty carefully. Um, this three-tier system, these Tide House laws don't exist, as far as I can tell, in any other segment. So Pepsi and Coke wouldn't be implicated. They, they would be free to say, go to Dan's bar and drink a Coke. <laughs> that, that wouldn't be a violation of any Tide House law unless the Coke was an um, alcohol product. Okay. So in your legal opinion, I'm going to ask you, do you think that in this day and age that we need Tide House laws? I do. Um, I, I will be the, you know, I will say that I, I have a particular bias, I think, in this. I try not to be, but um, tight house laws are important for small and independent craft breweries and distilleries. Um, the numbers and the market power of the big players are mind boggling. When you start talking about companies brewing, you know, more than 15 million barrels of beer that's an unholy amount of alcohol. And it's interesting because in terms of breweries, uh, at least in the United States, the number is like 84% brew less than a thousand barrels. And so they have relatively minuscule market power. And these tight house laws are important because if you're a big player and you have uh, really, really deep pockets, uh, you can go out and you can basically buy um, shelf space. You can buy tap handles. Now, it's illegal, but it does happen uh, pr pretty regularly. If you search around the web a little bit, you'll find lots of instances of bigger companies going to retail accounts and essentially paying in some manner, whether it be free TVs, maybe a new bar, maybe straight up cash. Um, those things happen. And if we're to legalize that, I think that it would be to the detriment of small business owners, small breweries, small distilleries, because they would just be simply overwhelmed. Now there are, there are some tight house laws that are that are being kind of um, lessened. For example, in California, it's, as you know, it's illegal to give away anything of value. However, there are lots of exceptions, and the newest one is what we call the glassware bill, where a a large menu or any manufacturer of alcohol is allowed to give, I believe, up to five cases of glassware to a retail account. Um, that came last year, and it was sponsored by big manufacturers because they're the only ones who can really 
play that game. Or you can buy glassware. Right. Glassware is very expensive. So your small little brewery, small little distillery isn't going to be going out to its retail accounts and saying, hey, I've got some free glassware for you. Uh, whereas there's, there are only a few players who can actually do that. So that's a legal instance of it. But other than the specific exceptions from state to state, it is illegal to go out and offer anything of value in exchange for um, in exchange for placement or tap handles or anything like that. So let me ask you, I know that I can go to any restaurant uh, and see um, umbrellas on the patio that are branded or a light in the window that tells me they serve Blue Moon beer, for instance. Um, where are those, how do those fit into into it because i mean those would seem to be things of value i know that the restaurants aren't necessarily paying for them or maybe they are i believe they are well if they're doing it legally they are <laughs> there's no law against um purchasing uh manufacturers goods as, as an example like uh umbrellas or beer signs etc uh they are allowed to buy them but they're not allowed to receive them for free. So they can buy those umbrellas for a dollar? Well, and that's getting a little tricky. Um, I suppose if that's the, well, I'm not going to answer that like I know it. I don't know the answer to if there's any kind of price um, requirement. I suspect there's probably not. But um, I think that as long as they're not receiving it for free, um, then that and, would be. And it's not a tied house violation. Correct. Okay. So it could be a somewhat um, murky gray area loophole. Yeah. And there, there are free things they can give. Again, these are exceptions. So if we go back to that. I think it's rule 106 allows like a brewery to give away. And I'm not precise on the numbers, what we call advertising specialties. And so, I believe it's around $3 per unit item. If it's less than that, um, if it doesn't appeal to minors, um, then they're allowed to give out things like you see, like keychains, uh, coasters, things like that, really kind of minor things. And they can't be tied to a purchase. So you can't say, hey, we'll give you this cool keychain if you buy our beer. That's called an inducement. And that, that would be a violation of the Tide House laws. But because of an exception, they are allowed to give away um, kind of small, smaller things. So for these um, distilleries that are also have restaurants or a tap room even, um, what would be maybe a good rule of thumb f as far as training uh, their staff? Because I, it's my understanding that even the staff can say yes to, to an offer and then get the entire company in trouble. So what kind of training would, would a tap room or public facing outlet need to do in regard to tied house laws? So I think that they're the safest. I think what I think best practices is, is to have, you know, one or a small team of people who are well-trained, um, well-versed, I guess, with the tied house laws who are in charge of purchases and the kinds of um, contractual arrangements. It's dangerous to have multiple hands in that pie because somebody might not be as as um, familiar with the laws, they are pretty tricky because they're they're sensitive to. I mean, who would have thought that a Twitter post, you know, is is a violation of the Tide House laws? So my my advice to a client would be, you know, pick one or two people, maybe three if you need it, you know, and let's make sure that they're trained up on what they can and can't accept, what they can and can't give away, 
and let orders run through that particular person. It's it's pretty dangerous to spread it out. Okay, and so going back to our case is uh, with Seven Stills, it, it looks like they got their first violation in December of 2018, but that they garnered about 60 in total. And each one of those violations comes with a fine of $10,000, which would have meant that the brewery would have had to cough up nearly $600,000 to stay in operation. That was not a feasible situation for any kind of uh, craft level product. And so they worked with their ABC in order to probably negotiate a 90 day suspension. And to mitigate the financial hit, they also decided to close two of their facilities uh, altogether. So they were they indicated in the article that they tried to address each violation um each time they got one and each answer that they gave the abc apparently opened up more things that became violations um what is kind of a good rule of thumb when dealing with kind of a state liquor control board is there should you always have counsel present you know is there a level of communications that you can have with them like where where should you stop and get a get an attorney (laughs) (laughs) that's a good question distilling craft is brought to you by dalkita a group of architects and engineers who specialize in designing craft distilleries across the u.s more information is available at our website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A.com. Now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Distilling Craft Podcast. In the next segment, Daniel and I are going to talk about when you need to hire an attorney to deal with your alcohol control board. You know, it kind of depends on the, the business savvy. I think once... Um once a violation is alleged, then I think it's important to have counsel um, involved in the process, somebody who knows the industry, somebody who knows the law, somebody who can negotiate on your behalf with the control board. Now, at least in California, the control board is also willing to discuss with uh, alcohol industry members, you know, gray areas. So if, if you have a question about, hey, can we do this or can we do that? You don't necessarily need to go to a lawyer, although I, I would recommend you do, but you don't need to. You can go straight to the ABC here in California and ask, hey, are we allowed to do X, Y, or Z? Um, some people kind of do it, try to do it anonymously. Some people don't. But it's always good to ask, and I don't think you need a lawyer for that. But I think once a violation uh, comes down or an allegation of a violation, then I think it's important to get counsel involved because... I think what I took from this Seven Stills article that we were talking about is that they kind of kept answering questions and getting kind of getting in more hot water as as they went. And it might have been helpful to have counsel um, kind of directing the conversation. And so this article particularly did indicate that um, that, you know, as they answered questions and provided more information, there were more questions and they provided more information. And then they just started digging into every facet of the building, including old social media posts, brewery production logs, records from the tap room uh, over the past two years. Um, And so we talked about a little bit about 
um, what the Tide House laws, so it's designed to maintain that separation between the three tiers, and the laws prohibit companies from offering gifts of value, which in this case, social media posts, I guess, are considered uh, value, which I think is one of the issues um, is that there was there's not really a dollar figure associated with a social media post. And so um, how do you define value, I guess? And that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and your point for the social media post is a good one. I don't think you can put a dollar value on it, but it is essentially in the mind of the regulators, uh, free advertising. So who decides what's a thing of value? Well, ultimately, if it's not in the code, uh, the state code or the state regulations, then it's really up to the regulating body to determine if they think something is a thing of value or not. Um, you know, I don't think there's a specific definition out there. Um, at least not that one that I've come across that says this is a thing of value. This is not. I think it's kind of more of a value judgment. Yeah, is it, yeah. is it helpful <laughs> to the manufacturer or the retailer? Excuse me. Is it helpful to the retailer in any manner? If it is, and it's not a spelled out exception, you're at risk of of getting a violation. Another um, violation that they mentioned later on in a. Um, press release was something like a potential violation where a brewery cannot say give a dollar for each pint donated to a particular charity, rather they have to donate a predetermined amount. Is there any other, um, I guess, giving social situations where something like that could happen, where it be, would become a tied house violation? What is the best way to support some charities, I guess, with a brewery or with a distillery or a winery? That's a good question. Um, so the problem with um, beers or whiskeys for a cause type scenarios is that it could be seen as an inducement. Um, if you're say, Hey, at our brewery on Wednesday night, we're selling, we're going to donate X amount of the profits to, you know, children's cancer research. It's possible um, that the regulators would see that as inducing people to come to the establishment and purchase alcohol. <laughs> so I could see that being grounds for a potential violation. Now, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the, uh, the ridiculous amount of fires we've been having in California and the big one that we had up in paradise um, last year, this one, in that case, Sierra Nevada created a beer. Um, the name is, is a oh, resilience IPA and they were donating a portion of those proceeds to the paradise fire the campfire, I believe it's called. And I don't know the details of this, but I have it on pretty good authority. Someone I trust that in that instance, they went to the ABC the California regulators and said, can we please brew this beer and donate proceeds to the paradise fire victims? And I believe, and again, I'm not saying this is fact, but I believe that they were granted that permission. And then Sierra Nevada, along with a slew of other breweries brewed this resilience IPA. And most of them, there was a story a while back, perhaps not all of them donated the amount of proceeds that they were supposed to, um, to help the, the campfire victims in a, just a kind of like, hey, our, our brewery's, um, you know, cellar man's wife got ill and come to the brewery tonight and we'll donate a portion of, of the proceeds to 
his family to take care of her, I, I think that's very risky because it could be seen as an inducement, which would be a violation. So it's tricky. The best way to help is to follow your, your state's donation laws. It seems to me uh, California has laws where you can donate to a 501C. You can give away free beer uh, that they can later use at events. I think that's a good way to do it. Just make sure that you're checking your, your, um, your state's code as to what you can and can't donate. Do you see any of the laws changing around, um, you know, either making it easier to support community events or, or even defining things in this era of social media? That's a, that's a good question. It might happen at the regulatory level, meaning the agency level. I doubt it would happen at the legislature because what happens at the state legislatures mostly is... Um, Special interests, and we'll just say big manufacturers, are typically introducing um, legislation that is aimed at weakening Tidehouse because they want to be able to get out there and use whatever means necessary to regain market share that they've been losing to craft breweries for you know, the better part of a decade or longer than that. Um, so basically what's happening at the state legislature level are are bills that come in that that favor big manufacturers and then the smaller breweries and perhaps distilleries are then forced to basically play play defense against those bills so i don't see you know a big push at the state level for um making like kind of donation type things um easier i i, I could see the state regulating bodies um making changes and saying well you know this is we'll, we'll make this an exception um, because it's going to this good cause. But it, it seems also very likely, very difficult that the state agency would be able to track the proceeds, track the funds. Is there going to be a recording, a reporting requirement? Um, so you, know, you have to keep in mind that these, these liquor control boards are primarily concerned with two things. One, the prevention of serving overly intoxicated people uh, more alcohol because bad things happen. And two, keeping alcohol out of the hands of minors. So with their focus on that and their limited resources and, and human power, uh, you know, their attention is elsewhere, which it actually strikes me as a little surprising that um, in this SF gate story about step seven stills, you know, you don't see too much market policing going on. It's, you know, it happens. Um, but this one seems very aggressive and, you know, the, I don't know what they did. I wish them well. I hope, you know, hope everything works out for them. I have no idea what they did, and I'm not commenting on whether they were right or wrong, but it seems like there was a lot going on here that drew the ire of the ABC. So, you know, it's it's really interesting to see how they prioritize their enforcement activities. It is interesting. And um, I do want to note that the um, folks that had gotten dinged by the ABC indicated that the ABC was relatively nice to work with, um, and this particular situation, I guess they were moving from an LLC to a C corporation, but hadn't completed the merger. And so they had some of the property for the brewery slash distillery in the name of the LLC or the C corp or vice versa. And so then that became part of their negotiated uh, settlement, I think, with the ABC in that you know, they had to close one facility maybe that was under the LLC um, altogether. Uh, they have a brewery and a tap room and a restaurant. 
that is a 22,000 square foot um, project. And so they found, and we have a lot of folks on the architecture side of things, that their project ends up costing much more than they ever thought that it would. Uh, and that was the case here. And so they really pushed to get the restaurant open, for instance. Um, but then now they don't have the money to finish the production space. And so this particular um, company, I think, has brewed some backlog stuff to carry them through this 90 uh, day suspension. Um, but yeah, so it was just an interesting situation when the music stopped, right, and everybody had to scramble to find a chair uh, where this particular situation broke uh, for this particular company, I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, it, you know, it, and those, those are very interesting facts. I think you have to think carefully about your license. Um, the premises are licensed, and the license holder can be a person or, or an entity. And it, if you know, so you, you are brewing or distilling off your licensed premise, but say if an LLC owned a license and you were transitioning to a C Corp or something and you didn't um, transfer that ownership interest through the ABC and the license, then you would be essentially brewing or distilling at a premises that isn't licensed um, by the entity that <laughs> has the license because so, you have to think of an LLC and a corporation as different people, just they're, they're distinct. Um, at least in the eyes of, of um, ABC in this case, it would seem that they are distinct entities. And if the LLC owns a license, well, that means that the corporation doesn't. So it would be essentially, seems like unlawful manufacturing. Now I'm speculating again. I don't, <laughs> I don't know any right. of the, facts of the case. But. Who knows how the paperwork broke over these two particular entities and locations. Right. Right. You just gotta be really, really careful with your license. You know, I mean, a 90 day suspension. I, I don't, I don't, I can hardly think of, of what we'd call independent craft breweries or craft distilleries that would be able to, you know, effectively navigate that 90 days of non-production. You can't even really set foot in the manufacturing facility and you can't sell it. Um, it would put most companies, at least ones that I've dealt with out of business. I mean, so it's a, it's a pretty harsh penalty. Um, there must've been a lot of substance to it, but I hope they come out fine on the other end. Yeah, me too. Um, so thinking about, you know, the laws are on the books, whether or not they're being enforced in different places, um, you know, is, is kind of, location dependent, I guess, right? Knowing that those laws exist are really important. Where would you suggest people start to become educated about some of maybe the more arcane aspects of different different laws like a Tide House law if they would have it in their particular state? You know, state by state, every state, at least every one that I've looked at, um, has a website to their alcohol control board, whoever that may be. And, in California's ABC, in Washington, for example, it's, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but anyway, they, they all, every state has their own. And if you click on the website, there will be a link usually to rules and regulations. And you can click there and you can start your kind of education that way. Um, they're usually links to the statutes and the attendant regulations. So that, that would be my advice. To, it would be to start there. And if they have, um, you know, questions that they just can't answer that on their own, then they should probably reach out to counsel. It's important to keep in mind that the statutory scheme is what we call a permissive statute. And what that means is if the statute doesn't say you can do it, you can't. So um, it's hard to write, I mean, 
it's hard to deal with statutes that are written like that because it's impossible for the legislature to think about all the permutations that might come in that area of the law. Um, but still, the rule is if it doesn't say you can, you can't. And if you proceed in any other fashion, like, well, maybe we'll get away with this one, you're taking up really big risk. So, you know, it's funny because uh, I only still represent, I just teach full time now, but I represent one brewery still. And, and um, one of the managers, the people that I deal with a lot, calls me the no man. <laughs> Of jokingly because they're always calling and they're saying, "Hey, can we do this?" And I'm like, "Nope." Well, why not? Like, because because the Business and Professions Code says you doesn't say you can. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes there are ones that are truly gray. And what we'll do sometimes is we'll call the ABC and we'll say, "You know, hey, can we have this idea? We're not sure if it fits or not." And you know, most times they'll get back to you with um, with their view on it. Sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's no. I would encourage alcohol industry members not to be afraid of, of calling their uh, regulating body and, and asking. Most of them have helplines or, or at least um, emails for general information. And I think instead of taking a risk that's going to get you shut down for a you know, pretty hefty period of time, it's better to have clarity on it up front. So I, I would say go to the rules and regulations on the websites. And if, you, if you're not satisfied there, either call an attorney or call the uh, regulating body. Do you um, recommend that if they did have a gray area and they called the helpline and somebody on the other end of the phone said, yeah, you can go ahead and do that. Is that something that they need to back up with writing or? Yeah, absolutely. Should I get that triple signed and notarized? You know, at the very least, you know, send a uh, responsive email or something. Hey, so-and-so, thank you for chatting with me yesterday. Just confirming that you stated X, Y, Z about this question that I asked you and uh, await the response. <laughs> but yeah, you did, I mean, it, it's, it would be easy for, you know, someone to say, well, they told me I could, you know. Yeah. Right. Right. So I, w I would definitely try to have it in writing. Okay. And that's just good general dealing with anybody making decisions or interpretations of any kind of code. And so we deal with building and fire code here at Dalkia all the time. Uh, and, you know, anytime somebody offers an interpretation that is either against code or is going to be kind of like grandfathering something in or allowing it because you have, you know, more protections somewhere else, that's a, definitely something that we tell people that they must get in writing um, so that it's traceable. Um, because, you know, once the regulators come in to a building, for instance, and kind of inspect this, if they see a weird sprinkler set up, for instance, in a distillery, um, they can ask questions about that. And you need to be able to prove that you were able to build it that way, right? Or design it that way. Yeah. And sometimes I'm sure, you know, like, you know, with the fire inspectors and the building inspectors one might tell you one thing and then you make that fix and then the other one says no you can't do that yes you have it's always great way. to have multiple reviewers on a project yeah, I find really great it happens in alcohol as well with health departments and you know this department that department and some sometimes you get conflicting um instructions from a particular inspector and you know you just kind of that's the problem with you know kind of local agency multiple regulation and one might tell you one thing and one might tell you another and you have to find that common ground and it's kind of it's, it's expensive time consuming and generally a pain in the rear 
Right. And then you have to document it. We always want to document it. Yes. But yeah, we definitely wish uh, Seven Stills the best of luck to get through this 90 day shutdown period. The last thing I wanted to talk with you about is that it seemed like the penalty. Um, so they came to this resolution in November of 2019, and they thought the suspension was from that point on. So they had stopped operations for December, essentially, and then January, and then come to find out that the penalty didn't start until February. Is that something that is normally hidden? Um I wouldn't say hidden. I think they can institute the, the suspension, the, the regulating body can institute it whenever they, they see fit. So that would be the kind of thing that an attorney might have been able to to help with. Um, you have to look at, at when the suspension starts and when the suspension starts, you have to cease all operations. Um, but it's, it's possible that was simply overlooked. Um, you know, they maybe assumed that, oh my God, you know, we got to stop right now, but it would be in the papers uh, for the official suspension. Gotcha. Suspensions, they seem awfully harsh, right? They really do, uh, but they have different impacts on different size industries, right? Like um, there was a case a few years ago, I can't remember the date, but one of the large beer manufacturers um, was busted for tight house violations. They were, I believe, giving away TVs and refrigeration units, which can be very expensive, up to $20,000. Essentially with the um, the expectation that their beer would be pushed. They got caught and they entered into a, a settlement with the ABC and it was somewhere around $400,000 fine. Now for a small company, that would probably be enough to put them under. But for this particular behemoth, um, it was just the cost of doing business, right? Yeah, Someone did the cost, the calculation on it. It was like roughly 3% of the daily profits that corporation made. Um, so like you said, you know, cost of doing business for, for some people, and it's an absolute game changer, game stopper for another group. And I think in essence, that's why we need the tight house laws, because I, I believe they would be abused, uh, at the exclusion of small powerless, uh, companies in the market, should we not have them. So I, I do think they, they serve a very beneficial bonus or benefit, excuse me, to, um, to the smaller industry players like craft breweries and craft distilleries without the tide house regulations. Um, I think they would be forced out of the market, you know, relatively quickly. So with that note, tide house laws are good and beneficial and that everyone should try their best to abide by them. Um, they, if you're interested in how tide house affects your location in your particular state, the best place to start is going to be your alcohol control board. Uh, at the state level, where most likely they will have links to their laws and rules that you should read through and highlight and page mark, <laughs> um, just so that you know what's going on in your industry. Thank you for armchair quarterbacking this story with me. I appreciate it so much, Daniel. My pleasure. I appreciate it. A special thanks to Daniel Croxhole and by extension, Seven Stills Distillery for helping us better understand Tide House violations and their context both with the distillery industry and how that compares to other food products in the market. Ultimately, they help craft alcohol businesses compete. If your state has uneven concessions between wine, beer, and spirits, get involved with your state guild. If you don't have a state guild, start one. There is strength in numbers and a chorus of voices is harder to ignore. 
That's it for this turbulent eighth episode. We're going to ease back into this. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that a giant thank you goes out to you for downloading and listening to this episode of our podcast. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, even if you like just a tiny bit of today's show. It really helps out with our show's vital statistics. If you want more information about this show, go to the show notes on our website, www.dalkita.com slash show notes, where we will have links to the people, places, and things mentioned today. There is even a real live transcript of the show to share with all your friends. And you can post a short comment for our team to obsess over, dissect, and even infer your tone and judge your grammar. Our theme music was composed by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. The final shout out goes to the man that puts all of this together, our sound editor, Daniel Phillips of Zero Crossing Productions. Until next time, seriously guys, stay safe out there. I'm Colleen Moore from Dalkita and this has been the Distilling Craft Podcast. Dalkita is committed to getting intelligent and quality design solutions out of the craft distilling industry. Check them out at their website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Until next time, this has been Distilling Craft. Cheers. Cheers.